The first lesson, which is also the text for the sermon, from the book of Acts, chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, he might bring them to Jerusalem as prisoners. As he went on his way and was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you need to do. The men traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but did not see anyone. They raised Saul up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. They took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. For three days he could not see, and he did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord told him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and to the house of Judas. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. In fact, at this very moment, he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. Indeed, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias left and entered the house. Laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom you saw on your way here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. He is sure that he will find some of them in Damascus. Damascus is the closest really big city outside of Israel. A lot of Jewish people were already living in Damascus. Uh, many other Jewish people had fled persecution in Israel and joined them there in Damascus. So he is confident that if he goes to Damascus, he will find some followers of what they were calling the way. If he goes to Damascus, he will find some of his fellow Jewish people who have converted to Christianity, who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He will find some of these followers of the way in the synagogues of Damascus trying to convince their fellow Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, who died for their sins and rose from the dead to guarantee their forgiveness. He knows he's going to find them there, and once he finds these Jewish Christians in Damascus, he knows exactly what to do with them. Men, women, children, really doesn't matter. If they follow the way, 
he is going to round them up, lock them up, and hopefully, maybe eventually, even have the opportunity to kill them. And he knows he's going to find them in the synagogues of Damascus. It's going to be easy pickings because these Christians, these followers of Jesus, they have a way of not knowing how to keep their mouth shut. They can't stop talking about their Savior. So they will be very easy to identify. Easy pickings. So this man Saul goes to the high priest and he asks for permission to go to Damascus and round up any followers of the way that he can find. The high priest gives him that permission and he gathers up a couple of henchmen and heads for Damascus. Uh, to be fair, Saul is not doing this just because he is a violent man. He definitely is a violent man. He will admit that about himself later on in life. You know, some people, they just come out of their mama's womb with both fists clenched and they just spend their whole lives swinging around and that seems to be what this guy was like. But that's not the only reason that he is going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And it's not because he's some kind of atheist who just hates all religion and wants to wipe all religion off the face of the earth. Well, Saul is doing this. He is going to Damascus to persecute Christians because he honestly believes that this is the right thing to do. He thinks that treating Christians this way is a good thing because Christians are blasphemers and children of the devil. Saul honestly believes in his heart of hearts that what he is doing here will make God happy. And the reason Saul is thinking this way is because he's not stopping to compare what he thinks is right to what God says in his word. See, it's not that he's ignorant of what God's word says. Saul is a Pharisee. He knows the Old Testament scriptures backward, forward, inside and out. He knows scripture better than everybody else in this room combined. The mistake he's making is that he's not comparing what the prophets of the Old Testament said about the Messiah to the life of Jesus Christ. He's certainly not taking to heart the words of Jesus Christ himself. Now, if Saul just did that, if he would just slow down and compare what he thinks is right to what God says in his word... He would not be traveling to Damascus to persecute Christians. Instead, if anything, he would be traveling to Damascus to join them in proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. But instead, Saul is going to Damascus with whips and chains because he's not comparing what he thinks to what God says is right in his word. And so, on his way to Damascus, the risen Savior Jesus himself appears to Saul to knock him down. And he definitely knocks Saul down physically. He knocks him on his back, takes away his sight and his strength. There is definitely a physical collapse that Jesus inflicts on Saul. But more important than the physical aspect of this is that the risen Jesus appears to Saul and he speaks to him and knocks him down spiritually he exposes just how wrong Saul is in his ideas about Jesus himself and about God's word and about Jesus' followers. And Jesus knocks Saul down spiritually with just a few quick and powerful words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Actually, the mistake that Saul is making in this story is not really uncommon. 
This is a common mistake that even Christians like you and me can make sometimes. Sometimes we Christians go through our lives assuming that our attitudes, our words and actions are acceptable to God, maybe even pleasing to God, when actually they are not acceptable and not pleasing to God at all. The mistake we make too is sometimes we just assume that what we are thinking and doing is God-pleasing, but we never actually stop and compare what we think is right to what God actually says is true and right in his word. And if we do that, we should be ready, at least once in a while, for the risen Jesus to appear to us through his word and knock us flat spiritually as well. There's a couple examples of this. Many Christians now assume that God is okay with it, maybe he is even pleased by it, when they act like they're married to someone before they actually are married to someone. And it seems like a, a reasonable thought to have, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a new car without test driving it first, and that's only like a 10 or 15 year commitment. So why in the world would you get married to somebody, which is a lifelong commitment, without trying them out first? That seems logical, right? It, God must be okay with that. God is a, is a reasonable being. This must be acceptable to him. But you see, if you stop and compare that attitude to what God actually says in his word, which is this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. See that passage, Jesus is ready to knock flat. Anybody who lets their ideas about this be shaped by their world or by their own logic instead of by the word of God. One other quick example of this. A lot of Christian parents who seem to think that They're doing a good job as a Christian parent. God must be pleased with what they're doing as long as they have their kid enrolled in a Sunday school and eventually a catechism class. And just leave it at that. You know, if you compare that attitude of it's somebody else's job to teach God's word to my kids to what God actually says in his word. These commandments that I give you are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So if a Christian parent thinks that dropping their kids off once a week in a Lutheran parking lot fulfills their duties as a Christian parent, the risen Jesus is still there in his word to show how wrong that idea is because it doesn't square with God's word at all. See, on the way to Damascus, the risen Jesus was ready to appear to Saul and show him what was true and what was wrong. And Jesus still lives. He still works through his word to show us what is true and what is wrong. What we need to do is listen to what God actually says in his word. And when we do that, we should prepare, at least occasionally, to get knocked flat spiritually ourselves, to have some ideas that maybe we thought were okay, thought were right, exposed as wrong. Now, Saul, who has been knocked down to the ground physically and spiritually, does not deserve even to get back up outside of Damascus. If you want to hear a kind of subtle yet extraordinary example of God's grace, here it is in just three words. Saul got up. 
After Jesus knocks Saul down physically and spiritually, he picks Saul back up again. And he does pick him up physically. He puts him back on his physical feet, and eventually he restores Saul's sight and restores his strength. But way more important than that is the Lord picking Saul up spiritually, forgiving his sins graciously. And the way God does that is the way he always does it. He does it with the good news of sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. And in this case, he uses a Christian man who was living in Damascus, a man named Ananias, to fill Saul with the Holy Spirit. Now, understandably, I think, Ananias hesitates to go and visit Saul. Maybe you would hesitate too, if someone told you to go and visit a serial killer who you were pretty sure wanted you dead, I think I would hesitate to make that visit as well. But after the Lord appears to Ananias, Ananias courageously goes and visits Saul anyway. And when he does, the very first words out of Ananias' mouth are, Brother Saul. You understand how amazing that first word is? From that first word, brother, Already, all of God's grace is coming gushing out towards Saul. See, Saul is already forgiven. and He's already back in the good graces of God and of God's people like Ananias because the same Jesus Christ who appeared to Saul on the way to Damascus to knock him flat physically and spiritually, the same Jesus Christ who also died for Saul's sins. It's the same Jesus who rose from the dead on Easter to guarantee Saul's forgiveness. So he is already forgiven, even for a sin as severe as persecuting Jesus' people. And were you listening before when Jesus confronted Saul about this? He didn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting Christians? No, this was deeply personal for Jesus. He says, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? That was the severity of Saul's sin. And yet, even though Saul is the chief of sinners, and he will admit that in the letters that he writes later on, Saul at this moment is learning firsthand the meaning of the hymn that we just sang. Chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Died that I might live on high, lives that I might never die. Jesus is picking Saul's soul up again with the message of forgiveness. He also uses the waters of baptism. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Now you will notice here that when Jesus picks Saul back up again spiritually, he does not use the same kind of powerful rattling display that he used to knock him down. When Jesus knocked Saul down, he used a flash of light and a loud voice from the sky, but when Jesus picks people back up again with his forgiveness, he uses a soft and gentle hand to pick us up. He uses the quiet whisper of the gospel in his word. He uses the cool waters of baptism, the humble but inviting bread and wine, the body and blood of our Savior in his supper. See, when Jesus knocks us down with the truth of his word, it can be kind of a jarring and disturbing experience. But when Jesus picks people back up again, he dusts them off very gently. When he forgives all of our sins, and including the times that we've left our attitudes unchecked against God's word, Jesus picks people up and restores them 
with the sweet, kind message of the gospel. And that is forgiveness that we need too, because Saul called himself the chief of sinners. We all just called ourselves chiefs of sinners when we sang that hymn. But God's forgiveness is for us too. He also tells us, only Jesus can impart comfort to a wounded heart. Peace that flows from sins forgiven, joy that lifts the soul to heaven. After Jesus picks Saul up again, and he has him back on his feet, bodily and spiritually, he sends Saul out on a mission. He sends him out on a mission to take that sweet, gentle gospel of Christ to the Gentile nations. And that is exactly what Saul, who will now go by the name Paul, that is exactly what he does with the rest of his life. And Saul, now Paul, is going to learn very quickly that when Jesus sets you on your feet spiritually and sends you out on a mission, there is going to be some suffering that comes your way. Jesus had said, This is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. Indeed, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, it seems kind of odd, doesn't it, that when Jesus picks people back up and sends them out to work for him, he sends them out to suffer. But this is the pattern that Paul is going to see repeating from now on in his life. He's going to get knocked down over and over again by physical and mental and spiritual and psychological suffering. But there is also this pattern throughout the rest of his life that every time Jesus knocks him down with suffering, Jesus is there again to pick him up with his love, with his grace, and make Paul spiritually stronger every time that he gets knocked down with suffering and picked up with the love of Christ. Suffering is another way that Jesus knocks his people down, and nobody enjoys it. Our falls into times of suffering hurt, and they are difficult. But Jesus also promises us in his word that every time we fall in suffering and pain, he is there to pick us up with his love, and that is his purpose each time, to pick us up and make us stronger in him than ever before. So, whether it is with the truth of his word or with the sufferings of life, Jesus does knock his people down. But every time, he is there to pick us up again, bring us back to him, and hold us in his loving arms. Amen.